0: guys welcome back to flickers of fear once again so i feel like the term elevated horror has been thrown around quite a bit in the last decade or so maybe more than that um but you know obviously anybody that knows anything about horror knows that you know what they call elevated horror it's not really a new phenomenon uh you know you've had art house style horror that's existed probably as long as the genre itself has Um, And in my opinion, I'm going to say that I think horror is probably the best genre available for when you want to maybe, like, explore some uncomfortable philosophical truths or some dark realities or something in a way that's maybe more, like, impactful or insightful for the person watching it. Um, I kind of feel like because you're taking things that are maybe unpleasant to think about or like really devastating emotions that you don't really want to unpack within yourself um, and placing them into the context of a supposedly unreal horror film, like placing things at one remove, uh, you know, in that unreal scenario, maybe might make the actual emotions at play much easier to process, much easier to digest, much easier to get a handle on. So I think that horror movies in that way can be like really cathartic and can like open up, you know, discussions about, like I said, stuff that maybe people don't necessarily want to uh, think about, you know. Now, obviously art house horror isn't for everyone and it doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, people like what they like and I don't really like to shit on people for having different uh, proclivities or different preferences or whatever. But I will say that for those who like to maybe explore the harsher extremes <laughs> of of horror, there are always kind of challenging films out there that are available to fit the bill, whatever you'd uh, like to explore. And oh boy, (laughs) is the 1981 film Possession one of those movies. Now this movie, it's kind of like, I don't know if I want to say it's like notorious, but it was banned in the UK for quite a long time. They put it on the video nasties list, which is a little bit strange. Like, I get why they did it. And it was actually, like, really hard to get hold of for a very long time. Uh, Happily, Shudder just added it, and I think they also did, like, a really nice uh, Blu-ray release of it recently as well. The movie was also, got a limited release in the U.S., but was heavily edited from its original two hours down to 81 minutes for the U.S. release. They took out, like, essentially, like, a third of the movie, which is why it maybe didn't get great reviews at the time, because a lot of the context of the story was lost. Now, although I will say that Possession isn't really super gory or super violent in the way that maybe you might be thinking, like maybe in the the way that like some of the other video nasties were, like maybe Lucio Fulci's movies or like the Cannibal Holocaust type movies or something like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. Possession is, you know, does have a lot of blood and it's very visceral and there is a lot of violence in it. But I kind of think this one just comes more What's disturbing about this one is just how uncomfortable it is to watch. Like, just, I don't know, just like the emotions that, uh, that it explores. It's very, very primal. It's very raw. And so I think it's more that. I think it's more the concept, the idea behind it, the way it's presented, more than it is any particular, like like, graphic, sexual, or violent content. You know what I'm saying? Now, the movie isn't entirely realistic but I wouldn't really call it surreal either it's kind of more it's largely realistic but it's more like exaggerated or maybe like hyper real um and it's clearly very metaphorical also and it's also open to multiple interpretations Now, when it was released, uh, it was often compared to the works of Roman Polanski and David Cronenberg, usually to Repulsion and The Brood, most specifically. And it was also a very obvious influence on a number of more recent films, you know, films that came afterward, uh, like the 2018 Suspiria remake, um, Antichrist from 2009, the Lars von uh, Trier movie, and um, the 2018 movie Climax, uh, Gaspar Noe. So this is a very, like, influential film. So in other words... If you are at all interested in any of those movies or those kinds of movies and haven't seen Possession, you really need to get on it because it's definitely a unique film experience, that's for sure. And whether you love it or hate it, because I kind of feel like you're either going to be one extreme or the other, I don't think that you will ever forget it. That is definitely for sure. So Possession was actually the only English language film uh, made by a Polish filmmaker named Andrzej... Andrzej... Zalowski, uh, who just died in 2016, I believe. And the concept for it was kind of came out of, he he went through this really, really horrible uh, divorce in 1976 uh, from his wife, who was an actress named Malgorzata Braunek. I, guess, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but hopefully I'm kind of close. So the movie then is essentially of just this bizarre and kind of highly symbolic account of the breakdown of a marriage, and the spiral into madness that's maybe engendered by the breakdown. But there's so much more going on in the story that it's kind of like difficult to pin it down to just one thing. So the movie takes place in West Berlin. And much as in uh, the Suspiria remake from 2018, the Berlin Wall uh, looms very large in the narrative uh, as a symbol of, I mean, in this case, probably representing division, descent, And maybe like the close proximity of evil, how it's always just like right there, like just beyond the barrier. So Sam Neill is in this. This was a fairly early role for him. And he plays a guy named Mark, who's some kind of international spy. And he's just returned from some shady espionage operation someplace after kind of an undisclosed, but you're led to believe very lengthy amount of time. So to his superiors, citing family reasons, he's basically like, well, you know, you guys need to appoint my successor because he essentially wants to retire from the espionage game and doesn't want to like do it anymore. However, uh, upon returning home uh, to his wife, Anna, who's played by Isabella Johnny in an award-winning and rightfully so performance because holy crap, uh, (laughs) this is one of the most, probably like fearless acting performances that I've ever seen. So Mark discovers that Anna is not real enthused about his return. Uh, she basically is like, yeah, um, I need some more time apart from you, even though he's been gone a really long time and he only just got back. So she's presumably had a lot of time apart from him, like up to now, but uh, apparently that still wasn't enough. So finally she tells him that she wants a divorce and he asks her, you know, oh, has she been seeing somebody else now? First she denies it, Uh, Now, Mark does actually admit that he hasn't been entirely faithful to her either, but, you know, it's kind of like a double standard thing where he's kind of like mad about it, but, you know, you know what I mean? It's, It's that kind of thing. So the couple actually have a son named Bob. And initially, Anna keeps Bob at the couple's apartment, and then Mark moves into what looks like a hotel of some kind, and he seems to go off on this like three-week bender of like drinking and emotional turmoil and crying and stuff like that, that he seems to remember very little of like after the end of it. So finally snapping out of this, Mark goes back to the apartment and finds out that Anna has just been out and about and kind of essentially, like, neglecting their son. Like, their son is left in the house alone, and he's just, like, sitting there covered with jam or whatever. Uh, Incidentally, this uh, event in the movie was based on a real-life incident that happened to the director, like, during the course of the breakup of the marriage, I guess. He came home and found their kid, like, all covered with jam because the mom was out doing whatever she was doing. So Mark then finds out that Anna actually did lie to him before and that she had actually been seeing someone else for quite a long time. And the person that she's seeing is this kind of suave motherfucker named Heinrich, who's kind of, he's kind of like a new agey guru type of dude, where he's just like all about using sex and drugs, like to expand the mind's horizons, man, like that kind of shit. Um, So it's implied, I don't even know if it's implied, it might be stated outright, uh, that basically Heinrich has been able to sexually satisfy Anna, maybe in a way that Mark never could. And it's also kind of further said that Heinrich supposedly um, accepts Anna the way she is rather than trying to impose his own idealized version of her like onto the real woman, which is what you're led to believe that, that Mark has been doing. And as if it's not bad enough that Mark has basically been being made into, like, an unwitting cuckold, like, by this man, by Heinrich, he also, when he goes over there to confront the dude, he also, like, Heinrich also, like, hands his ass to him, like, pretty handily. So, you know, he just beats the crap out of him. So, you know, that's just, like, adding insult to injury at this point. So, yeah, the relationship between Mark and Anna is extremely toxic, to say the least. On the one hand, uh, Mark does seem to be afraid that Anna's sanity is beginning to disintegrate and that her madness is essentially starting to become like a danger to their son. And to be fair, this does seem to be a legitimate concern because she does seem to be losing her marbles. On the other hand though, Mark doesn't really appear to give much of a crap about their son either. And his whole thing is that he mostly wants to, he seems to just want to control Anna and fit her into the mold of what he would like her to be. Now, Anna, for her part, um, she seems to be trying to escape what to her seemed like the very constricting roles of wife and mother. And this frustration she feels at being unable to escape this is kind of like um, fueling her guess—like heightening derangement, I guess. It's also suggested maybe that her ambivalence toward her family, toward her role as wife and mother is causing her a great deal of guilt And this in turn is kind of like feeding into this sort of constant back and forth between her and Mark. Like she flees to go be with Heinrich, but then keeps coming back to the apartment like to see their son. And then like her and Mark will get into it. They'll become involved in these violent screaming matches. And these often end up with physical violence. Like he'll start like popping her around and self-harm. Like at one point she, you know, cuts herself uh, in the neck, like with a electric knife and all this other kind of stuff. So it's, like I said, it's not, it's a very, very volatile, and it's a really, really very, very toxic and unhealthy relationship the two of them have, but they can't seem to just cleanly part ways. You know what I mean? Particularly because they have a son and that's kind of like, a, you know, a complicating factor. Now, Mark, who seems to be to, at least to some extent aware that the relationship between these two is poisonous, pretty much, um, but seems also like obsessed with possessing her, uh, hence the title of the film, which, like I said, is kind of a multi uh word. He hires a private investigator to follow her around and like see what she's up to. Meanwhile, while this is all going on, he's also started to become sort of intrigued with his son's school teacher, whose name is Helen, who's also played by Isabella Johnny. Uh, so, Helen looks pretty much, since it's the same actress, looks pretty much exactly like Anna, other than having kind of like lighter colored hair and green eyes instead of uh, Anna having blue eyes. I think she has blue eyes or dark eyes, I can't remember. But um, Helen's eyes are like super, super bright green. Now, it's not clear in the context of the movie whether Helen just happens to very closely resemble Anna or whether Mark is so wrapped up in his image of Anna that he essentially perceives every other woman who interests him as another version of her. I assume that's probably like the the latter thing. But I mean, either way, it's very, very unhealthy and it's also a little bit uh, unnatural, I'm gonna say. So the private investigator who follows Anna... Discovers that she has a terrible secret. <laughs> and it's right here where the movie takes a turn into batshit, quasi Lovecraftian body horror territory, okay? <laughs> because Anna, you see, has ostensibly birthed a sort of tentacled monster that you're not entirely sure if it's real or not. You're led to believe that it's real. But like I said, in the context of the movie, it doesn't really matter one way or the other. But this tentacled monster that she has given birth to, um, she has sex with it and she feels the need to protect it like at all costs. Now this monster, which according to whatever interpretation of the film you want to go with, um, I've seen it called, maybe it's a physical manifestation of her guilt at neglecting her son, like her motherhood role, or it's a physical manifestation of just the general evil like present within her or i've even seen it called maybe it's a representation of god or of the antichrist which you know there's an argument to be made for that too which i think was actually like quite good but this monster kind of slowly transforms as the movie goes on and anna resorts to violent and very very gruesome murder Uh, whenever somebody uncovers its existence. So she ultimately reveals to Mark that while he was away on his last job, presumably, she suffered what she termed a miscarriage. And this is where we're led to believe like the seeds of this monster like originated from. This miscarriage scene, like because they kind of show it like as a sort of flashback, I guess, like while she's telling him about it, is easily the most famous scene in the movie um, because... This whole this whole sequence is just a tour de force of just primal daring just intensely physical acting. Isabella Johnny goes completely balls to the wall insane for just this one long 5 plus minute take. She's just shrieking and writhing and fucking just down in her filth and it's just like it's horrifying to watch and she's just expelling blood and just white fluid which could be semen could be mother's milk could be lots of different things like from all of her orifices i mean watching her you absolutely believe that this is a woman who is legitimately losing her mind like right like on the screen right in front of your face and um isabella johnny like later said that It actually took her several years to get over the emotional toll that this film took on her, which I believe it. Like, seeing this movie, I I could totally believe it. I mean, but holy hell, her performance is just terrifying and you really have to give her it's like it's almost it's so over the top and so raw and like so visceral that it's like it's almost it goes on so long and it's just so outrageous that it's almost funny but then like it just keeps going it keeps going and then it just becomes like fucking horrific again you know what i mean but so i mean you really really have to give her fucking mad respect for just going there i mean you don't usually see an actor's performance that's like this where someone was just willing to just go all the way like this and it's just amazing to watch so anyway like um once mark is kind of confronted with the reality of the monster and also the horrible things that anna has perpetrated in its defense like all the murders she's committed He actually decides that, I guess in a way, he's kind of going to like throw in his lot with her, like protecting her the way she protects the monster, because he ends up like killing Heinrich himself, like kind of making it look like an accident or an overdose or something, and also starts to help Anna like in covering up her crimes. Now, along the way, his relationship with Helen, who's like Anna's doppelganger, also starts to kind of blossom a little bit, and... We're led to believe, I don't know if this is, because like I said, this there's lots of interpretations of this film and none of them are necessarily wrong. But I was of the opinion that we're led to assume that Helen, you know, the, the doppelganger, is at her core like Mark's perfect vision of Anna. Like she looks almost exactly like her, but is very maternal and very nurturing and kind of sweet and kind of submissive and not like, just this difficult, shrill, bellicose, just ball of rage that Anna is, so it's, so that I think that's kind of, like, one of the themes of the movie, and that's that's why there's, like, a lot of doubles and stuff like that, it's just because this is Mark's idealized version of his wife, like, he wants the woman that looks like her, but not, like, that acts like her, he's not willing to just accept her the way she is you know what I mean and as the movie like reaches the climax like the end the theme of doubles or doppelgangers like really comes into sharper focus because it turns out that when the creature that Anna has been cultivating I guess reaches its final form it turns out that it's Mark it's like a, a dead ringer for Mark only with different colored eyes and kind of like a slightly different demeanor like less controlling So, much like Helen is what Mark wishes Anna was, the monster is essentially like Anna's idealized version of Mark. So, I kind of read this as the tragedy of the whole story being that this couple could never accept each other for who they actually were, like just flaws and all, but it just kept insisting on projecting their own needs and desires onto the other, uh, and this just kept having devastating results. So, at the end of the movie, when the Mark monster, the Mark Doppelganger, goes back to the apartment and like knocks on the door, and Helen goes to answer it, even though the son Bob is there, and he's like terrified, and he keeps saying, "Don't open, don't open, don't like don't open the door um but she's kind of like she has to she's like she can't resist it um and as she goes to let the monster inside the house we hear what sounds like a battle like going on outside the apartment. Cause like I said, there's like a whole like socio-political thing going on too. Like with the whole like, uh, you know, Berlin Wall thing. So you kind of hear what sounds like just planes going over and screaming and bombs and shit like that and gunfire. And then Bob runs, the kid runs upstairs and appears to drown himself in the bathtub. Um, you're led to believe perhaps to escape the devastation of this horrible pernicious relationship that like I said, the two of them can't, apart from one another. They just have this kind of like fucked up thing where they can't be apart, but it's like when they're together, it just causes devastation like all around them because they can't just be with one another. The way They're always like projecting their own things onto the other person. And it's just like really, really unhealthy. So as I kind of alluded to earlier, Possession is easily as divisive a film as you're ever likely to encounter. Um, It's very in your face. It's very combative. It's exhausting to watch and um, it just features like so, so much screaming. <laughs> oh my God, it's just so much screaming. <laughs> um, you, you have no idea how much screaming is in this movie. Um, all of the emotions in it are very like overwrought, very hyperbolic, very operatic. And that's really kind of done on purpose, I guess, because... I'm I'm guessing what they were going for was that the interior perceptions of the characters are kind of like manifesting externally, you know what I mean? As these just exaggerated, extravagant body movements and like just animalistic howling and stuff like that. Because it's like, like I said, this is not a surrealistic movie, but it is a hyper real kind of movie where it's just kind of like... The the character's subjective experiences, like them going through this divorce, even though from the outside, if you were seeing it in the real world, maybe it didn't seem as devastating or it didn't seem like as big a deal, but to them it really was. And so the way that they're acting and the way that the movie goes, you're seeing their internalized emotions, I guess, like portrayed on screen. So everything is just over, like just super, super heightened. Everyone's like screaming and punching and it's just like this big, huge thing. And like I said, it was done on purpose because you know that you're manifesting their interior feelings like externally so all the actors in this are incredible um and you know as i mentioned isabella johnny in particular Her, i mean it's just an astonishing fucking performance like i said that somebody would just fucking go there like that uh the cinematography in this is also really amazing it really kind of reinforces the movie's themes um, because the camera at times is just very intrusive or it's like these chaotic movements. And a lot of times, like particularly in the early scenes with, you know, before everything just goes like completely batshit crazy, like the way that Mark and Anna, like the characters are framed, like, you know, the way that they're situated inside the frame and it really kind of like just um, highlights how fractured they are. So uh, it's there's a lot of thought put into the way everything is framed and laid out. Uh, so the movie is just, it's very outlandish. It's very stylized. It's very strange. It's kind of like less a movie. I mean, yeah, it's a movie, but it's less a movie than it is like an experience. You know what I mean? So I'm going to say if you have any interest at all in filmmaking just as a pure art form and in particular really enjoy kind of challenging not gonna lie, unpleasant (laughs) cinema like this, because this isn't a fun movie to watch. Like, don't. So I'm just warning you ahead of time right now. It's not a good time. Uh, It's gonna, like, bring you out, like, emotionally, probably. But if you're into that kind of stuff, and if you're in the mood for it, if you're really up for that kind of experience, then this is absolutely uh, a must see. And, you know, like I said, it's a cult classic for a reason. And if you have any interest at all in you know, some of the newer kind of more extreme type of films, then this is one that you should see because it was really, really influential. So that will do it for this Flickers of Fear. I'll see you guys again on the next one. Bye.